Russell Banks's word for word, idea for idea, one of the great American novelists. Although these are the words of Colin McCann, they reflect exactly how I felt about Russell and his work since first reading his masterful Continental Drift when I was a young bookseller. Russell is my guest today on The Literary Life as we celebrate the publication of his newest novel, Forgone. I want to welcome you to The Literary Life. It's really fun seeing you. You know, we've been friends going way, way back. In fact, I was thinking about this, that my bookselling life coincides with, you know, you're probably, you know, the long period of your writing that began with Continental Drift. Right. And, you know, that was when I opened in 1982, uh, that was like the first book that I got behind and hand sold and fell in love with. And then I remember inviting you down to this little tiny dinky festival we had called the Carl Gables Festival and book. You may not remember it, but it was in the middle of, you know, in the middle of Carl Gables, which then we went on to do the Miami Book Fair. You know, as I've gotten to know you over the years and understand a little bit about you know, these, these, you know, the depth of your empathy and the way you're able to see things, which comes through all of your work. What attracted you originally and what attracts you to, since we're, I'm talking from South Florida, what is it about South Florida that attracts you? You yeah, know, with a, all a, of the different places you could be. I know, and, I know, and, and have been and traveled, but never written about, you know. I mean, I've, most of my work is really, it's kind of bipolar in a sense that, that I either writing, um, setting my stories and drawing my characters from South Florida or from the northeastern quadrant, uh, upstate New York or New England. Right. Um, the two borderlands, in a sense. Um but well, I mean, Continental Drift, the thing that was so special is you married them both together. Exactly, yeah. And, and uh, occasionally I've been able to do that. And that was, that was the first chance I had to do that. But, but it's, it's an interesting question to try to answer because I don't have a, a ready-made answer. I mean, you know, I think, Mitchell, that um, there are places that when you enter them, everything is resonant everything has meaning you know this the fall of light the smell of the air um the the sounds in the air uh the look of the people uh, everything has meaning you know it's as in a dream you know in a dream every image has meaning um there are some places where that's that happens and it happened for me um in northern New England and upstate New York, and it happened to me in South Florida uh, more than anywhere else. I could name, you know, also Jamaica and, 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 and Haiti and the Caribbean too, and then West Africa the first time I went there. But, uh, but I've never written about North Carolina where I went to university, um, Alabama where I, I was a writer in residence, um, New Jersey, where I lived so long and worked at Princeton all those years. Uh, New York City, where I lived and worked. Um, those places didn't have for me that kind of magical 
transformative quality. Um, and, I, and I've thought about it, you know, why these two areas, because they aren't intrinsically more interesting or more literary than, uh, than any other place. In fact, less so than in most cases. And I think it's, you know, when you enter a place and you're in a very turbulent state, a confused state of mind, the place takes on enormous importance in presence in a phenomenological way, you know, it hits you in the face. Um, when you enter a place and you kind of got your life together and you're feeling kind of in charge of everything, um, you're not turbulent in any way. The place in a way recedes. It isn't, it isn't as confrontational um, in the same way because you're not, you're not there to be remixed in a sense. Um, and when I first went to Florida, Miami, I was 18 Talk years about old. You, how old were you? You were 18 when you... 18, first... yeah. I was 18 years old. I was a runaway and a dropout and had uh, put my, my promising young life uh, um, out on a stick at the edge of a cliff and pushed it over the cliff. <laughs> and, and, I, and, no, and I, was, I had disrupted all expectations uh, for me. Uh, and, and so I showed up in, in Miami and, you know, to this day, and now we're talking, um, 20, uh, talking 80, uh, I'm 81 now. So, you know, we're talking, uh, years ago. 63 years, um, yeah. 63 years later, I still step off the plane when I go to Miami where I keep a little apartment and I inhale and I smell the water off the Gulf and, um, and I hear the clatter of the, of the, um, palm trees and I'm right there again the same way I was when I was 18 years old what 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 drew you to Miami back when you were 18 I know that you had just left college right you had dropped out of college I dropped out after about six weeks so I had romanticized uh, uh, the uh, Cuban revolution which was wow. then you know underway it, it uh, was nowhere one at that time uh and uh, and romanticized castro and and uh and this was in the 50s before he broke 58 yeah the winter of 58 um and when i showed up and i had it in my mind uh, to uh, to somehow cross over uh into cuba and somehow get up into the sierra maestra and somehow get uh, uh taken into uh Fidel's uh, band of merry men and uh, and and uh, and uh, join in the revolution. Well, I you know by the time I got to Miami, uh, they were about ready to march into Havana. It was uh, I had no idea how to get across. I couldn't speak Spanish. Uh, it was just a teenage boy's fantasy in a way. And so there I was suddenly, and they they marched into Havana in February in '59 and. Um, no longer needed me <laughs> to recruit, and, uh, and so that was that was the end of that uh, attempt to uh, be a. Uh, so you, did you stay? Did you stay in Miami? For yeah, then I stayed in Miami. I, I, I this is really I wasn't writing then. I, I was just a. Um, I, actually, I thought I was going to be an artist, a painter, and um, and so. I got a job at a Mars Brothers uh, department store uh, doing window trimming in the uh, window trimming that had to be one, Palm, Was that Palm Beach or? In... Yeah, no, no, there was one then in, in, in Miami. They closed it down shortly after and sent me up to St. Petersburg. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I remember the Moss Brothers. It was, yeah. was that in the Bell Harbor? Well, it couldn't have been the Bell Harbor. Show. No, it wasn't there. No, oh, it, no. It's actually on the mainland in Miami. Wow, wow. And, and so you actually went to St. Pete. 
And then I went up to St. Pete and then I went to Lakeland. Um, and in Lakeland, I was uh, at 19 then, uh, the youngest uh, display director in the state of Florida, perhaps in the country. I was a director of display at this small Montgomery Ward store in oh uh, Lakeland, yeah, in, in 59. And Think 60. about how your life might have changed in some way or another. Yeah, right. I, mean, I could have risen to the top of the uh, display uh, ladder. <laughs> where, where did all of this come from? Where did this artistic sensibility come from, do you think? Who knows? You know where that sort of, that seed is uh, is from initially. I know that uh, as a child, I mean a very small child, five, six, seven years old. Um, the only demonstrable talent that I had was uh, I had a really good eye-hand coordination, and I could draw what I saw. I you know I could draw things that impress adults. I was my I was virtuosic, and and um, and uh, if you're have a gift as a writer, it doesn't show when you're young, uh, it, right. except in the, you're likely to be uh, one of those kids who tells stories all the time and is told to shut up and stop <laughs> lying. <You know? laughs> it's quite different. <laughs> but if you can draw well, people, adults will praise you and, uh, and teachers and so forth will praise you and other people will be impressed. And, and so uh, it feels good and, uh, and it's fun. And so, quickly you decide to start doing it. But I had never been in a museum. I had never known an artist uh, personally. And, um, because you grew up in Newton from with working class parents, right? Yeah, yeah. actually in New Hampshire, uh, my yeah. early childhood until I was a teenager was in New Hampshire in uh, small towns. And um, yeah, it was uh, also in the 1940s and early 50s, you know, and right. I was just a clever kid. Uh, and um, but my parents weren't bookish or, or, or artistic in any sense, really. My father had a musical gift other than that, but they weren't uh, eager for me to do anything except, um, you know, somehow find a professional niche for myself. And, and so was it a real disruption for them when you left, when you left? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. And, and um, you were, were see, my mother, my mother, my father had left the family right. when I was uh 12 and uh, my mother was a single parent raising four children i was the oldest and um and it was it was very disruptive for her because she had placed high expectations and hopes on me and i had dashed them all um and from her point of view and uh and then had run off and then had married early and then you know dropped out of college and so forth and yeah. Right, but it was but catastrophic happen, from her point of view. <laughs> but I happen to know she lived long enough to see you redeem yourself in her eyes. I'm yeah, sure. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Finally, she forgave me. Right. You know, I, I, I say I'll tell you a little funny story. You know, when my my mother died at ninety six, uh, but I got uh, my first honorary degree, and I told her with great pride, "Mom, guess what? It was St. Lawrence University." I said, "Mom, I'm." going to get an honorary degree in June. And she said, well, 
what kind of degree is it? And I said, well, it's a PhD. And she said, oh, Russell, you always did things the easy way. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she, she improved, but everything I did was still suspect. <laughs> That's really very funny. So when did you make that transition from wanting to be an artist to writing, to actually write? Yeah, it, it was in Miami, uh, those first months, uh, I was alone and lonely and um, didn't know what I had done to myself and to my life. And, and I started reading for the first time outside a curriculum um, and uh, just hanging out in the public library and uh, uh, reading obsessively and um, recklessly and indiscriminately. Um, and then you know, I fell in love with literature, really, and uh, fell in love. You I mean, Faulkner was alive then. Uh, Hemingway was alive then. Mm -hmm. Fitzgerald had only recently died, as it seemed. Uh, these gigantic figures were very much present. And from there, I just started spreading out and, and, and reading more and more. And then, like a, a, a clever monkey, uh, decided to try to copy what I was admiring and liking. And... Um, and before long, uh, I was spending all my time um, when I wasn't actually at my job working, uh, writing and um, trying to figure out how to do this, writing poems, writing short stories, starting novels, but never going too far. Are you anywhere. doing it sort of in a vacuum, in a literary vacuum? Did oh, you have any mentors or anything? No, then? not at that point. Totally. It was, in fact... Later, when I ended up in Lakeland and uh, and married, um, I was only uh, barely 20 years old then, um, uh, I decided I really needed other, I needed to find my peers, if nothing else, let alone forget a mentor, but just find my peers and, um, and hope that I could find a, someone who could actually teach me what to read and, 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 and how to begin to write seriously. And, um, and so I, I went up to, at that point, went to Boston and, um, and with my wife and settled there in, um, in a community, really. I didn't know it was a community until I was there, landed there and, and settled in of young writers and artists and, and musicians in Boston. It was a very lively scene then in the early 60s. Yeah, it was also, you know, the music scene was really interesting there. Yeah. The coffee house scene, all of that was going on. Yeah, you, you could hear, you know, Mingus and Miles live for the right. cost of a couple of beers, you know. Yeah, pretty wild. It was amazing, yeah. Did yeah. you then, and then when did you go to UNC? You went there? Not until 64. Okay. Uh, I was 24 by then. And, and you were getting uh, an MFA there? No, I never got an MFA. I, I went there as undergraduate. Yeah, I started as a freshman, and I mean, I raced through it and and got out of there in in uh, less than three years. Um, but um, and who were uh, some of the writers that that they were mostly poets? Although there are a couple of fiction writers there. There, I mean, they were teaching. There, there wasn't much. They they didn't have was a creative writing program there? as such. Was Ronald Price there at the time? Or? Was at Duke. He was at Duke. Yeah, and um, and then uh, there were a couple of writers there, but uh, no one of, of great stature like that. Uh, a wonderful person uh, named Max Steele, um, who you, whose work you may know. Um, he's, he's 
he died some years ago, but he was a wonderful short story writer. And, uh, but I had friends among the, uh, um, you know, classmates and so forth there, uh, poets mostly, Robert Morgan, William Matthews were there at the same time. And, and we were all friends and started the literary magazine, Lilla Bolero together. And, right. Uh, and then you also started publishing. I mean, I remember when I was in college, which was just a few years later, I remember uh, picking up some of the fiction collective stuff. Right, right. I was working with them uh, at that time too. But yeah, the, the, that was a big transition to Apple Hill. Um, and the only reason I ended up going there, going back to college um, was a great good luck. Uh, my mother-in-law, my wife's mother inherited some money and um, I was working as a plumber in New Hampshire with my father and in my father's and grandfather's shoes. Um, and, uh, and my mother-in-law said, would you like to go to college? And I'll pay for it if you will. And so, uh, so she essentially gave me a scholarship so I could go. And uh, you know, I was in New Hampshire at the time and I was married to a Southern woman who hated New Hampshire's cold and, and climate. And, and uh, she said, uh, I'll go along with this as long as you go to university in the South. And at that time, you know, there, by my lights, there were really only three major universities, at least in the Southeast. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was Virginia, Duke and Chapel Hill. And, uh, and I went down and visited them all. And um, Virginia and Duke at that time were all white and all male. And Chapel Hill was co-ed and racially integrated. And uh, so I said, I think I'm gonna be a little happier here than I would be at a place that is all white, all male and requires you to wear a tie and jacket to class. <laughs> and chapel every morning. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, the, the role of a writer in, in the way that you've approached it has always been to be very, very open to expressing yourself politically. And did that continue while you were in while you were in Chapel Hill in the early 60s? Was that something? Well, yeah, it was unavoidable. You know, uh, Mitchell, I, I walked in there in the fall of 64. With all the civil rights movements going yeah, up. Right in the middle of it. Um, and Chapel Hill itself, the most liberal city in the South, was itself being integrated, racially integrated. The bars and restaurants and movie theaters and shops and so forth were, um, were all being picketed and, and people were marching. And um, so I just joined the march. Uh, how could I not? And uh, before I knew it, I, uh, I was getting a, a very fast education um, uh, and an intense one um, uh, on the meaning and, and uh, presence and uh, of racial uh, segregation and uh, the history of it and the, uh, the the need to overthrow it and um, so I became part of that and joined the movement as it were. The collaborative work has has always attracted me. Um, I didn't realize that the Greater Witch and uh, I was attracted to collaboration uh, until I uh, I stopped teaching really. In 98, uh, 1998, I stopped teaching and uh, all of a sudden I started picking up again uh, political activism that I had, in a sense, abandoned, I guess, after the 70s um, and the civil rights and the anti-war movement. I actually really like working with other people. Writing is a solitary act and, and activity and, and uh, 
uh, it requires uh, long periods of isolation, but, um, but there's a side of my personality that also really likes working with other people um, and making something that no one of us could make on our own. I mean, and then I realized teaching was part of that, you know, that all those years I was teaching, I was doing it with energy and, and pleasure. Um, I was because I was, I was getting off on working with other people. Um, this so, was at Princeton, right? You did most yeah, of your teaching. Yeah, most of it was at Princeton, you know, all those years. Uh, and, but as, as soon as I wasn't teaching, then I started working with other people doing other things. You know, well, you did uh, film. I know film that and, yeah. you were involved with that. So you are, you know, you, you are collaborative and you're, you are very so, social yeah. in that sense as well. You've made it through the pandemic very, very successfully in a sense of being very creative during this period. You, yeah. you know, you finished Forgone, you finished another book, and also your collaboration with your editor uh, <laughs> has been wonderful during the pandemic. Uh, he joined our pod. <laughs> talk a little bit about that. And uh, well, Dan Halpert is not just my editor, publisher. He, he's uh, one of my dearest uh, friends for 50 years, and, uh, and uh, we've been friends. And, and really close and uh when the lockdown began last march uh um he was on the 34th floor of his apartment in new york uh running echo from there and i was uh up north with my wife chase and um we began to realize that dan's coming undone this you know this isolation is is really getting to him and and with you know and with zooming and running basically running echo by you know by computer and by Zoom. And so uh, I said, you know, you can do that just as easily in the Adirondack Mountains of New York. Why don't you come up and join us? And so in mid-June, he, he finally he fled New York and joined our pod and and has been in it ever since. Uh, we, we stayed up in, in Keene in the mountains till um, end of October and then came down to our house in Saratoga Springs, a sort of our city house. and. And he's been with us right along. It's been great, you know. Um, Dan has a little suite uh, in both places. That's his, and uh, he works all day. And, and Chase, my wife, works uh, upstairs uh, on her poems and her sewing projects and various other things. I work in the basement where I have my study, where I am right now. And then Dan and I and Chase meet for drinks at six. And then Dan and I cook. Uh, he's a great cook. I know I, I called you at one point, I interrupted your cooking, but I heard, overheard you guys. And, and I think if Stanley Tucci can have a show, there's no reason why Dan, you know, Dan and Russell can't have their own show. Cooking, cooking in the Adirondacks or cooking in Saratoga. Yeah. My daughter said we should call it Kitchen Codgers. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Well, you know, all of this conversation leads me into a discussion of Forgone. And it's hard not to, after we've talked about all of this, to think about, you know, the way you constructed this, drawing upon loosely, perhaps some of your own experiences maybe? Oh yeah. Yeah, more than I have in the past. Um, but, uh, I didn't see any reason not to. Uh, and I was trying to 
replicate um, the experience of confabulation that the character, the main character, uh, Leonard Fife is going through. Uh, and, and, you know, he's 78 years old, he's dying of cancer, he's medicated, he's um, uh, trying to tell his story to a camera and, and his final interview. And, um, and he's confabulating. And I, I became fascinated by that process of what happens when you um, mingle together. Um, it happens in dementia, Alzheimer's people do it. It happens under medication, do it in drugs as, as well. But the brain starts mixing together um, memories, uh, actual lived events, fantasies, dreams, uh, things seen in a movie, things read in a book, um, things told to you by somebody else that happened to them. And they all seem equally real and, and lived uh, as experiences. And uh, I first saw this up close uh, with uh, Chase's father, my father-in-law, who uh, was suffering from dementia at the end of his life. And, and, and I, I was close to him. I, I really loved the guy. And I, and I was really trying to figure out what is he experiencing? It seems so like a dream. Um, and, uh, and yet it, it isn't, it's something else. And, and I did some research on confabulation and, and, and realized actually it's very, very close to the process of writing fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, that this is what we do, except it's we're in control. Uh, we're structuring it around a narrative. Um, uh, we're making conscious decisions of what to put in and what to leave out. Uh, we're not caught up in a, in a, in a swirl of, 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 of these kinds of images. Um, and, and, and so in many ways, the, the novel is a representation, an attempt to represent that experience of confabulation as a man is trying to set forth the narrative of his life to a camera to, to, in order to make clear to his wife the truth of his life and, um, and the lies that he has lived, his many betrayals and abandonments um, over the course of that life. And the hopes that uh, in revealing himself this way, he will somehow uh, find uh, redemption and forgiveness. But there was that wonderful review by Adam Hazlitt in the New York Times book review. And I thought I would just read the first two paragraphs. Leonard Fife, the protagonist of Russell Banks's furiously driven new novel has been hiding all his life from the world and from himself. On the outside, he's a successful documentary filmmaker, a semi-famous left-wing figure in Canada where he fled to from New England in 1968, supposedly to avoid the draft. He resides in a well-appointed Montreal apartment with Emma, his wife and producer of 40 years, and has managed to be both materially comfortable and morally righteous. But at 78, ill and on the verge of death, he's now consumed by the need to confess that his life is as riddled with lies and betrayal as his body is with cancer. And why don't you tell us who is he, you know, who does he use as a vehicle for that confession? Well, he is his acolyte, ex-student, a young, um, younger uh, by far, uh, Canadian filmmaker, documentarian, who uh, he refers to in a slightly snide way as the Ken Burns of the North. Uh, <laughs> 
and uh, he's there. And uh, Vincent, uh, uh, the, the DP or you know cameraman, uh, director of photography, and and, uh, and the producer, um, Malcolm's producer, um, Diana, young woman, and uh, and then a very young woman who's uh, the sound person, and they're all present in the room. But most importantly, there are two women in in the room. And it's a darkened room. It's a black box kind of, of, of setup. His wife, Emma, is most importantly there. And he wants her, um, he can't confess honestly if, he, if she's not, to the camera alone, if she's not present. But he can't confess to her if the camera isn't present either and tell the truth. Because right. uh, he's a compulsive seducer. And uh, he believes he will lie if the camera's not there. And, um, and he believes that she's the one he wants to tell the truth to. He doesn't care what ends up on film, ultimately. Um, and the other person who is most importantly there um, is, uh, is Renee Jacques, a, his Haitian nurse. And she's important as an anchor almost in the book, uh, as a reality check, um, because the other characters, and especially Leonard Fife himself, are unreliable. I mean, their perspectives are all very self-serving in many ways. And, uh, and, and I think for the reader, as for me too, in the writing of the book, um, Renee's perspective, she doesn't judge him. Uh, she has nothing to gain from him. She merely wants to accommodate and tell him and, and, and keep him as, as pain-free as possible. Well, she also uh, tries, you know, we know at the end, she tries to save him as well. Right, you know, right when she no longer can really right oh yeah definitely and, and so she's she's very important and um in many ways too because she is also it's a story too about um true and false refugees and um you know the sixty thousand americans who who fled to canada in the late 60s early 70s in order to avoid serving in the military in vietnam um were given refugee status by the Canadian government um, and refused to extradite them back to the United States despite uh, um, the foot stamping rage of uh, Lyndon Johnson and, and Richard Nixon who tried and failed to be able to convince the Canadian government or the father of the present prime minister, Pierre Trudeau, uh, mm -hmm. to give them up. So the Americans were refugees uh, in Canada during this period. And, um, and, and Rene from Haiti is a true refugee. Yes, right, yeah. So the theme of what's a refugee, what isn't a refugee uh, runs through it. It's a, it's a interesting question and it even comes up today when we start talking about Marco Rubio. <laughs> you know, nice. was he a refugee or not? <laughs> well, his father was his father was still in Cuba when you were about to go. I know. He left at that time before, but he yeah. you know, all of that stuff. But yeah. but you know, it was very touching to me when Emma Emma Emma's a very intriguing character because She's trying to protect, she's trying to protect Fife, but at the same time, you get the sense that she wants to learn something about what he's saying, you know? <laughs> but yet the protection was very cool to me when you when you said, when she says at one point, oh, those things happened to me. They didn't happen to him, they were happening to me. 
And that made you begin to think about maybe we had an unreliable narrator here. Then toward the end, you realize when she says something like, I know all about this stuff about him, but I still love him. Do you, yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Kind of, you begin, and that sort of reasserts his reliability in terms of telling the story through this haze. I didn't realize that, like Joan Baez, was that actually true that she saw the Canadian uh, deserters, yeah. you know, as not in a favorable light? Yeah, it was, it was actually happened. We went to Canada uh, to, to, I think it was 71 and, uh, or 69, sorry, 69. Um, there was a big folk concert there in Toronto, uh, just outside Toronto. And, uh, and the Americans up there thought, oh, great, here she, here she comes, the peace goddess, and she's going to come up and she's, and she's like, it's, and she's going to be our, 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 our saint and, and she's going to convince uh, Bea Trudeau, who loves celebrities and love beautiful women, that, that since she's both, that, that, um, that the Americans should be allowed to stay. It was still up in the air then. And she got on the stage and denounced them uh, for not for leaving the United States and, and pointed out something which I don't think I've ever read much about. Um, and I did quite a bit of research for this, um, that um, if those 60,000 Americans had stayed in, this was her argument, had stayed in the United States and had gone to prison rather than serve, as her husband, David Harris, had done, he was then in prison when she was in right. In Toronto, um, then it would have ground the whole machinery of war to a halt because these were mostly middle class. They were almost all white. Uh, these were the sons of the bourgeoisie, the American white bourgeoisie, and uh, their parents uh, would not have wanted their sons to go to jail. They would rather they went to Canada as they did. But, uh, but it was an argument that was on the left uh, uh, was a strong one, and and. Uh, uh, in the United States at the time, and and, um, and and one that divided a lot of people who were against the war because, of, well, for the very reasons that she that she announced uh, when she went to Canada, and the and the Americans in Canada at that time were felt um, betrayed by her mm. and, and and confused by by the issue. Russell, what's next? What are you working on next? Well, I. I say you started to talk a little bit about the the lockdown and effect of the of it on my writing, and it and it, it, it it somehow managed to to create circumstances under which I probably should have imposed upon myself many years earlier because I <laughs> I managed to to start a novel for which I had done all the research in um, in December um, of 2019 just before the pandemic, and. Um, and turned it in in September 2020. Um, and it's like over 400 page novel. And it's set in, um, in Florida, in the Everglades, uh, the Northern part of the Everglades in the late 1890s and uh, early 20th century, there was uh, a little known Shaker colony. Um, of, of, in, and they were so great at draining swamps and, and, uh, and, um, and, Turning it into agricultural, uh, agriculturally productive um, um, land, uh, that uh, within a few years they were selling pineapples to the Cubans. I mean, they, they were great, <laughs> greatly successful farmers. So I stumbled onto this, and I just became fascinated by the idea of 
a Shaker colony sent down from upstate New York, which was then the center, still the center of Shakerdom, uh, in the late 19th century to set up, they bought 7,000 acres of swamp, drained it and turned it into a very productive Shaker colony. The more I got into it, the more I loved it. Anyhow, so the novel is set in, under, in, in that context. Yeah. And that'll be out? A year from now. A year from now. I can't yeah. wait for that one. That'll be spectacular. Would you read a little bit of uh, Forgone? Forgone, yeah. Um, just a couple of pages here uh, from the first chapter, um, which does set it up. And, and you, you've certainly done that, a certain amount of that already. But this will give you some of the idea of the prose, at least, and the voice and narrative. And I mentioned Malcolm, the... Um, he is the filmmaker who's controlling this uh, documentation of, of, uh, of Leo Leonard Fife's uh, confession. Um, so he's directing. Malcolm says Fife's name and the date, April 1, 2018, and location, Montreal, Quebec, and claps his hands once in front of Vincent's FS7. The camera is attached to a tripod on a track that orbits the circle of light on the bare floor and stares at the featureless flat black side of Fife's face like the dark side of the moon. The unseen side is lit by the overhead spot. His silhouette has a molten golden edge, a penumbra surrounded by impenetrable black space. Malcolm is right. Fife still has a beautiful brooding bald head, at least in profile. The illness and chemo have dissolved a quarter of his body, liquefying his flesh, pushing forward the long arc of his nose and his cheekbones and prominent chin and the plates of his skull. He looks like a polished Roman coin. For a few seconds, everyone is silent, waiting for Malcolm's first question. But suddenly Fife says that he's going to answer a question that no one knows to ask today. The question he says is simply this, why did you decide in the spring of 1968 to leave the United States and migrate to Canada? For nearly 50 years, he's been answering that question, creating and reaffirming the widespread belief, at least among Canadians, that Leonard Fife was one of the more than 60,000 young American men who fled to Canada in the late 1960s and early 1970s in order to avoid being sent by the U.S. military to Vietnam. Those 60,000 men were either draft dodgers or deserters. For half a century, Leonard Fife was believed to be a draft dodger. It's what he claimed on the day he crossed the border from Vermont into Canada and asked for asylum. He's claimed it ever since that day. The truth, however, as always, is more complicated and ambiguous. Therefore, consider the preceding as merely a preface for here begins Malcolm McLeod's controversial film, Oh, Canada. Although brilliantly shot and edited by McLeod and produced by his wife, Diana, in the late Leonard Fife's own manner, it is in some ways a disheartening, disillusioning film about Fife, one of Canada's most celebrated and admired documentary filmmakers. Oh, Canada shocked and disappointed the millions of Canadians who admired Leonard Fife for being one of those 60,000 Americans who fled north in the late 1960s to escape being sent by the American government to kill or die in Vietnam. While his film Deathbed Confession may have been cathartic for Fife himself, 
It has brought many Canadians to question their past and present national policy of offering asylum to so-called refugees. Refugees are people who have fled their countries because of a well-founded fear of persecution if they return home. They are assumed to have seen or experienced many horrors. A refugee is different from an immigrant. An immigrant is a person who chooses to settle permanently in another country. Refugees are thought to have been forced to flee. Leonard Fife claimed to be a refugee. That's the end of the first chapter. Uh, Russell, it's been really wonderful having you here on The Literary Life. Uh, the new book is For, For Gone and uh, just recently published to some remarkable reviews. And you can buy it at independent bookstores everywhere. <laughs>